0: You're deploying the critical infrastructure that's what you have to build your future on. And what this is, is about jobs, economic development. You're talking about making an investment for generations to come. And it's really important that you do it right the first time.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast, live edition. (laughs) Sorry, it's it's an old joke with the show that they're all live editions um, recorded, not really live. Gary Bolton is with us, the CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association. Welcome. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. You've been doing, I think, really great work um, branding the Fiber Broadband Association, being out there talking about fiber broadband. Today, we're going to talk about, I think, what I think is like a more turn to more aggressive approach to it, um, which I'll just admit, I, I think is both correct and I'm still uncomfortable with it. <laughs> so, um, um, but first of all... It means I'm doing my job, right? I think so. I really think you are doing a good job um, at your position, and I think it's needed out there. Um, but for people who are old school and may not recognize you because maybe they haven't been tuned in, you're the Fiber to the Home Council. Uh, America's uh, is now the Fiber Broadband Association. Can you just 30 seconds on why that name changed?
0: Sure. Well, just uh, Chris, just a little bit of background about the whole Fiber to the Home Council. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, we're the Fiber Broadband Association. I'm responsible for the America's, so North America chapter as well as we have a Latin America chapter, and then we also have the Fiber Optic Sensing Association, FOSA. But um, we're part of a uh, a global organization and also has a European chapter, Mm -hmm. um, Middle East, uh, North Africa chapter, a South Africa chapter, as well as an Asian chapter. So there's six chapters, and then, again, um, one of our subsidies is uh, the FOSA. And so, what we're responsible for is making sure, um, advocating for deployment of fiber across, um, you know, the Americas or Latin America, and our members. You know, what's nice about our membership is we're multi-stakeholder, mm-hmm. so we are the full ecosystem for the fiber broadband industry. So, about a uh, little over half our members are service providers, and the other half are the supply side. So that's everything from engineering consultants to uh, the financiers to the um, fiber manufacturers to the access equipment manufacturers to the deployment specialists and enclosures and all that stuff. So anything that has to do with fiber broadband, that's our membership. And that's what we're, you know, who we represent.
1: And that includes uh, some of the largest companies that have built fiber out to millions of homes like AT&T and Verizon, as well as probably some of the smallest, um, or at least the smaller ones that have uh, um, elected to join and, and get both the benefits of your association, but also the way trade associations work. The more members you have, the more you can advocate for these sorts of things that, that a lot of fiber deployers should be supportive of.
0: Yeah, we're really lucky because, you know, we're at kind of this historic moment. With this big investment cycle that we're coming into in fiber so if you look at our service providers as you mentioned you know they could be large like a verizon or they could be an um, alternative like a google fiber to uh, windstream all the way down to uh, municipalities uh, rural electric co-ops and if you look kind of the nature of broadband deployment what we saw you know kind of in the early days it was kind of the verizon ATT. t And so then what we saw is that as communities were being left behind, they started stepping up. And so we started seeing municipalities start stepping up. Like one of our chairmen is uh, Katie Esbeth from EPB, the Electric Power Board of Chattanooga. And so then, you know, we started to see a lot of need for helping communities be able to stand up broadband. So we, like at our conference, we have workshops on being able to go everything from community well to financing it to deployment and you know servicing and everything that has to do with fiber. So um, there's a lot of value from, for communities or rural electric co-ops to join, just even like we had a branding workshop because a lot of these you know municipalities aren't great at um, bundling and branding <laughs> and <Yes>. selling <laughs> consumer services, basically.
1: Right. Yes, and I should say that we are together at the Broadband Communities event in Houston, Texas, uh, um, where I guess the, the next one will be next year. Uh, We'll have another one of these in early May in Houston for broadband communities. Uh, What shows do you have coming up where people might come to learn more about uh, the fiber? That um, sort of I think of you as being both technical things and like what's happening in the technical end of fiber as well as business practices and marketing and things like that. What shows do you have coming up?
0: Our big one is our Fiber Connect conference in uh, June in Nashville. So um, we had a we were forty percent above our record um, ever this past July, and uh, we look are looking to add another 500 uh, attendees slots. We had to close early. I think we'll be sold out again early. So we need to get, you know, if you're interested in coming, uh, it'll be a great show. My next thing is uh, the Calix uh, Connection Summit in Las mm-hmm. Vegas is in a couple weeks. But um, it seems like anything that has to do with uh, fiber and broadband or even um, workforce development, um, I do spend a lot of time with uh, PCCA, that's uh, you know basically the labor workforce uh, Power Communications and Construction Association. Um, so that's a big part of you know. As you mentioned, some of our committees. Um, one of our most popular committees is our Technology Committee, and so um, our members really have a strong technical acumen, and so that really is the foundation for advocacy. So we really are very fact-based on our advocacy. We our public policy committee is very strong. We have great lobbyists, and uh, hopefully Thursday we'll have a very positive vote.
1: Yes, when people hear this unfortunately they'll they 'll know which way it went, although it might be delayed eight times before then so so we don't know but but I know that you've been doing great work along with other advocates uh, to make sure that that money is spent in a way that will benefit um, future generations and not require uh having to um, subsidize the same households over and over again to get proper infrastructure to them and i'm I'm really on board with that um you have a button. You have a slogan. Uh, if it's not fiber, it's not broadband. We're going to come to that in one second. Sure. But one other thing I want to ask you about that I think is really exciting. You're doing a kind of a workforce training approach. Tell us about that quick.
0: Usually um, our investment in our industries, uh, federal subsidies, has been about $4 billion a year. And with this um, infrastructure and RDOF and everything coming down, we're looking at about four times that here in the coming years. So with all that CapEx investment, we really don't have the workforce. Right now, um, our Workforce can grow at about 15% a year. And so what we did at the Fiber Broadband Association is, given our expertise, is we put together a fiber optic technician training program, unlike anything that's available. So there's lots of fiber optic training, but that's very a lot of breadth and no depth. And so what we did is went very narrow and very deep to have 144 hours of classroom and laboratory training with 2,000 hours apprenticeship, and it's fully um, uh, accredited by the Department of Labor and so we're rolling that out. We're getting ready to do our pilot um, here the end of the year, and then we'll be training up trainers to roll out to community colleges and institutions across the nation.
1: For those of us who are new to this, recognize the need, Just what does that mean? Uh, so, so is this like uh, it's coming to a community college near you kind of thing?
0: Well, if you think about, so the way that broadband infrastructure bill is going to be uh, rolled out, it was a be administered by NTIA, but all the money will be pushed down to the states. And so then every state will, whether they have a broadband office or something like that, they'll have to put something up to be able to distribute this money. And so as they're distributing the money, the, the communities and the operators that are going to take the money mm-hmm. need, uh, feed on the street that can deploy the fiber. And so we'll be working with those broadband offices and the workforce development to make sure that those community colleges and, you know, training institutions and even operators that have their own training that we can be able to get those trainers trained. For example, we met with, uh, you know, you and I were up in um, Keystone, up in the Summit County. And uh, so I, I had some follow-up meetings with um, the state of Colorado. And so they have a great workforce development office. And so mm-hmm. we met with um, the, the Front Range Community Colleges. Now, in Boulder, they're all set up. They have expertise in fiber optics, they have labs and all that. But the other campuses don't. And so what we need is to for that state to be able to t- take that you know the equipped boulder outfit and be able to bring the other community colleges up to speed and so really that's we've got to be able to be scalable with this and so we're looking for help from the states we'll provide the expertise we need to help you know have them figure Mm -hmm. out how to scale it up to their state
1: okay that's it's wonderful and i want to track that as it goes because i'm I'm very interested in this we're doing a little bit of work uh in indian country to try to help build um uh, indigenous workforces to um, own their own networks and develop those sorts of skills and there's a lot i can maybe try and um steal from you um but
0: <laughs> well actually and the, the exciting part about this we're not just you know providing a job but we're doing training for a career so you know if you come out of the military or if you're coming you know you're coming out of high school and you're looking for a career You need fiber optic technicians in every community across the country. So Mm -hmm. it's not like you have to go some crazy place across the country to get this career. You'll be able to do, you know, get this training in your community and be able to, you know, have this uh, career in your community. Yes. Or anywhere you want to go. So it's pretty exciting.
1: So let's talk about if it's not fiber, it's not broadband. Where does that come from?
0: So my good friend Bob Knight and um, Kim McKinley have—they um, chair one of our committees uh, called the um, Public Officials Roundtable.
1: And I can't say anything bad about them because they're peeking through the curtains yeah. behind Hi, us. Gary. There's Bob.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, Kim's here too. Fresh back from the beach, uh, where she worked very all right, hard. <laughs> so now I
0: got to change what I say about them. no, but so one of the you know the first meetings we had, um, we were talking the public officials were talking about um, when they go to their city council and they say hey we need to fiber and they're like well why should we do fiber because we're gonna have 5g and they it just mm-hmm. it's just being out and when they hear things like 25 3 or 100 by 100 you know none of these things mean anything to them
1: because in the back of their mind they're thinking the next election there's going to be glossy mailers saying council member so-and-so voted to spend 20 million dollars of your hard-earned money on this thing that was totally not needed the mon- the monorail from the simpsons that's what they're afraid of
0: the issue is that it's so complex. This is how you get, you get confused. And so when they hear things, they don't know what to believe. Mm-hmm. And so just to simplify it, it just dawned on me that we should just say, if it's not fiber, it's not broadband. Because at the end of the day, it's not about how much speed. I mean, we're shipping 10 gig symmetric pond today. So 10 gig services, when people are talking about 25.3, mm-hmm. we're going to be shipping 25 gig pond and 50 gig pond. And so the speeds keep going up. But there's other things to worry about, like latency and security and reliability. And so, so fiber is the gold standard in every ele- on every dimension. The other part of this is when you deploy, you're deploying the critical infrastructure, that's what you have to build your future on. And what this is, is about jobs, economic development. It's really about being able to have that remote healthcare, mm-hmm. online education, and that platform for future services like 5G. So if you don't build the foundation right, you know you're talking about making an investment for generations to come, and it's really important that you do it right the first mm-hmm.
1: time. Well, let me ask you um, some challenging questions. Then. Sure, go ahead. And and I'll say that like I, you know, I'm anyone who's followed my work knows that I'm a strong fiber advocate, um, but I do also see important roles for wireless. I'm working, you know, with uh, tribes to try to encourage the use of 2.5 gigahertz. I frankly think wireless could do a lot if we really reformed how we allocate spectrum and things like that. So... Um, you know, I'll be totally honest that, like, I'm not going to be as, you know, if Claude Aiken was here grilling you, he'd be asking you perhaps different, more pointed questions, but I'm going to do the best I can.
0: Well, I would say I need more fiber to get to my fixed wireless. Well,
1: Claude, Claude, I actually, yeah, absolutely would say that. And I, you know, I think he also does a very good job of of navigating a challenge and that his members need both fiber and wireless, um, you know, in order and he to. He also accelerate. sent
0: a letter to every governor every, across every state saying, ignore all those treasury rules. On not <laughs> deploying fixed wireless.
1: I mean, I've also um, encouraged um, people to read the Treasury rules in certain ways. <laughs> so, um, but let's let's talk about uh, one of the most common claims, which which I think probably is there might be a tie. We'll come to the second one in a minute. But the first one is, yeah, it'd be nice to have fiber everywhere, but we just can't afford that. That would, it, the cost would be far too much and. Usually there's not they don't, no one almost like knocked down and, like they might say it might cost 300 billion dollars um, I don't think it necessarily would but like the sense is is that we just we can't do it because it's too costly it's impractical
0: if you go 85 years ago when you're putting out the rural electrification act mm-hmm. and getting power to every person across America if you got power to house why can't you get fiber
1: because labor was cheaper then
0: Oh, is it about labor? I don't think the cost is labor, right?
1: Well, no. I mean, this is well. I, I, this is something. I mean, so there's there's two things I would say to come back to you. I think it's you're making a very good point. You know, like we've had 85 years. No, but of think innovation. about it. We have the polls now, so but, but think easier. about if
0: if your home wasn't served by electricity, because say, oh, Chris, you're too expensive. Why? Mm-hmm. You know, I can serve it to your neighbor super cheap, but man, you, you know, you're down a long road, mm-hmm. and so um, you know, you can get a generator or something. Right. Right. I mean, that was the, when was uh, yeah. the last time? That you worried about you know, how much electricity you had to your house. Right, right. You, you no, don't one sit does. There right. no one sits there and tells you. you, you don't worry about it, right? You turn mm-hmm. on all your lights, work, everything, you know? Right,
1: and, and that's where I feel like it's a really good argument to get the job done right. I also do think, I mean, I just, I mean, this is where you sort of hear the libertarian in me starting to creep up a little bit, which is like, it is harder now to permit and to go through a lot of these processes. And the, I think the cost of labor is higher than it was then when farmers might have taken a day off in the off season to put their own poles in and things like that. And, and maybe we should be, I think, frankly, some of your, you probably know of instances in which people have done that. I just came from a, you know, we were talking about the People's Telephone Cooperative in Kentucky where they famously used uh, Bub, the mule. Um, but anyway, I mean, that's, that is something that people will point out is that it is it is more expensive now. And on top of that, electricity had a monopoly. And so it was easier to spread those costs up, um, uh, around because you had that monopoly. And we can't give anyone a, a broadband monopoly today.
0: So what uh, the administration, uh, President Biden's is doing is providing $65 billion, mm-hmm. right? And this is on top of, you know, like states like California that have $6 billion for broadband. And you're looking at, you know, we have $20.4 for RDOF. We have the Reconnect Program, so there is lots of subsidies, you know, state um, mm-hmm. and federal, as well as um, private investment. So there's there's plenty of capital to do this, mm-hmm. and it really comes down to digital equity. And so when you go and say, you know, Chris, we're going to treat you differently because of where you live. I mean, I'll give you an example. Is and this isn't just rural; this is urban. You know, I, I teach at the university in the evenings. As a matter of fact, I had I gave an exam last night, um, and so I had my students. Um, do a study. This might uh, have do big data analytics in the spring. So this past spring we did a study in um, the city and tried to figure out why certain zip codes were left behind. You know, we say that we're in a real prosperous city but there's certain zip codes that are just left behind and so they looked at all the census data, did triple regression analysis and three things bubbled up. First is, is um, are they spending more than 30% of their income on rent? Mm-hmm. Right? So they're basically living hand to mouth. Second is do they have access to broadband and the internet, right? And um, I can't remember what the, the third area was, but basically... That's the, okay, Governor. The, <laughs> the, the net of all this is that um, if you don't have provide broadband, you're, you're relegating to a certain segment of the community mm-hmm. to uh, generational poverty, mm-hmm. right? And so that's that all about digital equity. And so if you're able... Because what happens is... Um, the retail moves away from those low-income areas, right? And they move to the high-income areas. So now those entry-level jobs where those low-income area people get to, well, they don't, they're very far away now, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you're trying to take two or three jobs to be able to ma- pay your rent that you can barely afford to, then it just puts you in this um, you know, death spiral that you're never going to yes. get out of. And right. so it's really critical that you're able to, for online education, for even, like, even getting um, you know, the COVID relief, you know, the money there. How did you get it? You had to go online to be able. So I thought that was pretty interesting that it's a basically a race online. And so yes. who, who's able to get PPP and everything? It's those that have access to you know, really fast broadband and computers.
1: Right. And I just and that's that's where I come down to, because I just I do not think it's a good argument that we don't have enough money because that is a code word for anyone who understands government that it's not a priority. And what that means is, is that it's not a priority that some people who I think in many ways have already been disempowered, like rural rural regions should have a lot of political power in our system. And in some ways they do, but it's often not exercised in their benefit. And I think a decision that says, well, we can only afford to make sure that 90 percent of the population has good broadband is writing off 10 percent. And I don't think that's appropriate. But one of the things that I'll hear, and let me let me know if you've heard this before, is people will say, well, it's mostly second homes out there. We shouldn't be putting money into fiber so that someone's second or third home that they're going to stay at for one or two months a year gets fiber.
0: You you see that, right? That comes out saying, oh, here they got um, some uh, federal subsidies and that, you know, subsidize broadband to rich houses on the lake. Well, yeah, I mean, so I have a lake house. It's on the in the, the poorest county in North Carolina. But, yeah, all oh, the houses line the lake, you know, they're not so poor. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, being able to have the people that serve that community, so when you go out to restaurants, when you all the, the goods and services that are from that community, if those people in the community don't have broadband, they're going to be stuck in that same situation. And so you, you can't just say carve out. And, again, that's all this propensity to spend model, right? The broadband providers are happy to deploy where there's a propensity to spend, right? And so that's the zip codes or the areas or the region of the lake, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but this is what's great about the administration is they're looking to get this money down to um, providers that are going to serve every member of the community. Right. Not just those with the highest level of income.
1: So I think the second argument is is time to market. Sure, it'd be nice to have broadband out to everyone. But it's going to take four or five years to build out to some of these areas. The electric co-ops, you know, they're building as fast as they can in many cases, but it's very challenging on tight margins. So they can't just do it all in one year. So it's going to take too long and wireless is faster is the is the supposition.
0: Well, so first of all, all devices are wireless, right? I mean, we live in a wireless world. Um, when I get on my computer at home, it's hooked to Wi-Fi or you might have something hooked to Bluetooth, um, 5G, your phone. I mean, so... We, we are un- totally untethered. So wireless is fantastic for mobility. Um, but the first rule of wireless is get it out of the air and into the ground at the first available spot. And so if you look at kind of where we're going for the service of the future is that they have to be very low latency. If you want to have autonomous vehicles, if you want to have um, virtual reality applications, you have to have ultra low latency. And just you just have to, your,
1: your your Amazon device that responds to the A-word. Um, just you want to have a conversation with it. Those require very low latencies. So you have
0: latency, security, all those things. Um, the, and that's where, you know, if, if Claude or any of the virus guys were here, they would say, yeah, I need fiber as cl- close to a subscriber as possible. And that's where what you want to be able to do is you want to get fiber super deep and then provide, you know, some untethering. But, you know, who knew that... Um, you know, my Peloton was going to suck all my bandwidth in my house, mm-hmm. right? Or my ring doorbell, you know, so the applications, you know... the uh, security system. Well, today, you know, we talked about um, precision farming and, um, you know, swarms of drones needing, you know, two gig symmetric. So these applications are going to drive the need not only for um, you know, massive amounts of broadband or bandwidth, but also with very, very low latency. And then you got to think about security, you got to think about reliability, durability. Um, so all that... Means fiber, and so yes, um, you want things untethered, but you need to get fiber as close to the endpoint as possible.
1: Doesn't it take too long, though? I mean, uh, to to get all that fiber out there, and so we should just be focused on doing something that we can roll out to as many people as widely as possible as soon as possible.
0: Well, I'm sure Elon Musk would go for that argument, right? A, <laughs> That's a very a good argument, yes. right? You right. Low Earth orbit satellite, be able to cover everybody. Um, you know, the problem with that is what you know we we did a study and provided a model to the FCC that showed that Starlink is going to, even if they meet every claim they make, they're going to 56% of those 640,000 um, locations for RDOF are not going to be able to deliver the broadband that uh, Elon promised the FCC. And so you don't want to be relegated to being on the wrong side of the digital divide. And so you don't, what you don't want to do is take shortcuts. So now, yeah, absolutely, if I'm You know, pulling fiber on one side of the lake and I can be able to beam, um, you know, fix wireless across the other side of the lake and serve some people there while I'm deploying fiber to them? Absolutely. You know, so there are Mm -hmm. lots of technologies you can do to be able to give people service today while you're getting fiber to them. But what you don't want to do is say, here, I put up a wireless signal or satellite and stuff and say, okay, you're done. Chris, you got your broadband. Good good luck. Mm -hmm. Because you know as i mentioned earlier you know we're shipping 10 gig symmetric today we're going to be 25 gig here soon and it's 50 gig um you know we saw that fiber can deliver 2.55 terabits you know the game's not over right mm-hmm. here in 2021
1: right. so i want to i do want to say that i think um, Starlink would say that they disagree with your findings on that. And so I thought you made totally reasonable arguments. I think Starlink's engineers feel like they can push beyond some of those things. And I just want to get that in there just so people have well, a for Well, they can if they out. don't
0: have subscribers. So if they only serve <laughs> 640,000 subscribers, but guess what? You know, they're going to, every commercial, every military base, anywhere that they can be able to pick up a subscriber. And when you're on a shared medium, like a satellite, mm-hmm. It's going to be dependent on how many subscribers you have. So if you're the first guy to get Starlink, you're going to have it great. But it's like, you know, being on cable. You know, when the school bus lets out and people get on the Internet, all of a sudden your service is going to not be so good.
1: Yes, I think it's true. And I don't want to spend too much time on it because I want to make sure we have some time to mingle here. Um is that upload is people are noticing it now. And I, and I feel like one of my biggest frustration with uh, whether it's people I like in the cable industry or people I like in the, that are focused on wireless is I feel like they often just want to say, no, people really don't need upload and it's not important. And I think we're seeing that it is important to people.
0: Well, absolutely. You know, we've seen the applications, you know, just the pandemic has kind of driven the need for being able to do. Everybody's doing Zoom and Teams and all kinds of collaborative applications. You know, if you work from home and say, like in your business, you know, if you want to upload videos or any kind of content, you know, you need to be able to have that capacity mm-hmm. and to be able to claim that people don't need capacity. You know, it's kind of like building one way highways like, oh, you don't need to get back home. It's, it's crazy. Right. And so, um, you know, those arguments are solely driven to make sure that any subsidies come to they want to secure their incumbent position. And not have competition, or they want to dumb down the requirements so that um, you know legacy technologies can participate.
1: So I want to ask you about um, dynamics in the industry then, uh, as we close out, and that is that. Um, it, off the top of my head, my sense is, uh, I think it's 40% of Americans have access to fiber to the home now. Is that what you said?
0: Yeah, that's right. At the end and, of um, last year.
1: And that is um, majority driven by AT&T, Verizon. Verizon probably is far out in the lead with the most passings. You've got AT&T, Frontier had bought a lot of the Verizon stuff. And more recently, in last year, you're saying almost all the investment came from smaller providers in, in terms of the increase.
0: Yeah, 88% of the fiber capex was from small providers. So you know, we're seeing uh, there's about 900 rural electric co-ops, over 100 are already have broadband networks, and hundreds and hundreds of others are now, you know, with RDOF and other funding looking to deploy. We have municipalities, we have new emerging providers. Um, so across the nation, you know, those who have been left behind are, are, or you know, have figured out they got to, you know, make things happen on their own or find providers. And what's really interesting is that um, these incumbent providers now have realized that there's an opportunity to them to provide a public-private partnerships, and so you know we see that, you know what the administration is trying to make sure that every American served, and so if there's a model, you know I've never met a mayor that said I want to be in the broadband business, but every single one of them says I need economic development, I need jobs, mm-hmm. I need to really, um, in, you know increase the um the standard of living for my citizens, um, and so, you know what these incumbent providers are now saying is. You know, if you guys want to put in the facilities and you need an experienced provider to help you with services, they're willing to do that, right? And they're very flexible in the model. So we're seeing all kinds of public-private partnerships now.
1: Yeah, and even from, I mean, obviously... A lot of small companies have historically been more willing to do that, but we are seeing this more. I mean, we're seeing it in New Hampshire from the incumbent telephone company Consolidated, which is the fifth or sixth largest in the nation, maybe seventh. They're a large telephone incumbent. Windstream seems more open to this. CenturyLink's doing it in Springfield. This, it seems like it's a whole new world out there.
0: It's certainly a big change from the past, You know, where the incumbents were trying to lock everybody out and hold mm-hmm. their position. Now they see that it makes good business sense to partner with communities that want to you know, and I think that's great for everybody.
1: Mm-hmm. And I feel like one of the things I'm happy about is that it's not just a partnership in the sense of you, you take the money and we'll take the network. Um, some of these partnerships are the municipality has considerable, um, you know, control and, uh, and in uh, future power and things like that. So uh, there's a lot of models out there. Um, Gary from um, Gary Bolton, uh, Fiber Broadband Association. Thank you so much for your time today.
0: Chris, anytime. Always good to see you. And uh, great event here down in Houston.
1: Yes. Yeah. I'm very excited to be here face to face and I'm glad a lot of people are masked up. We've got yep. a, the best of both worlds to make sure we're safe and we still get together. Thank you so much. All right. We'll look forward to seeing you soon.
2: We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadband bits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at community nets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening.